This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 14, Ketamine. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host. Never afraid to bring the jibber jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello, and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. As always, thanks very much for spending some time with me today. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about ketamine. A couple of days ago, I gave a talk at a CPD day that was arranged by the British Association of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, or BAVEC. Big shout out to the BAVEC crew. Um, The talk was entitled Special K, Is Ketamine Really All That? Unfortunately, I did not have the technology in place to record that talk, but I thought it would make a good podcast episode. So I'm going to represent some of the same information that I covered in that talk here on this episode. Before that, as always, thank you to the people who have taken the time to rate and or review the podcast in iTunes. This week, I especially want to thank someone from Australia who goes by the name of Utter Nonsense. But thankfully, that is not what he or she thinks about the podcast. They left a five star review and wrote... Great listening. Shailen, thank you for spending the effort to create these podcasts. I enjoy listening to them on my way to work and find the content incredibly relevant to my cases. Thank you for all the supplemental reading and notes that go with the podcast. Please keep it going. Cheers. And another review that was really cool was left by someone from the USA whose name is either Mrs. Coucher or Mr. Scoucher. And I couldn't quite figure it out. He or she left a five-star review and writes, Good for VT students. I'm a vet tech student getting ready to graduate from my vet tech program in a few months. I'm currently in an emergency and critical care class. So I've started to listen to this podcast to supplement the lectures. I may not understand all of the details of the topics, but I'm learning new information with every episode. I'll be recommending this podcast to all of my ECC classmates. So thanks for those great reviews, guys. Much appreciated as always. And now let's get into the episode on ketamine. As you know, ketamine is a drug that is abused by people. And for a long time, one of the things that used to make me chuckle was that whenever they mentioned ketamine on the news, they would refer to it as the horse tranquilizer despite the fact that it is so much more than that and has been used in human medicine for quite some time. Thankfully, in more recent times, the news reports that I have seen anyway are a bit more up to date. So the clinical use of ketamine was first reported in human medicine in 1965 in the literature. For those of you that are into boxing, that was the year of the Muhammad Ali title rematch bout with Sonny Liston where Ali knocked Liston out with what has come to be known as the phantom punch, because there is controversy as to whether there actually was a punch or not. But anyway, I digress. 
So ketamine was approved for clinical use in people in 1970. The first report that I came across in the veterinary literature was in the veterinary record from 1973, a paper by J.B. Glenn entitled The Use of Ketamine CI581 in Feline Anesthetic Practice. And CI581 is what ketamine used to be called before it was named ketamine. Now, one thing that we do need to keep in mind is the whole area of evidence-based medicine. I don't want to get too sidetracked down that discussion, but it is noteworthy that despite the drug having been used for several decades, there remains controversy about some of the traditional dogma related to the drug, its effects, its contraindications, and so on. It is actually quite a hot topic for clinical research in human medicine at the moment, especially when it comes to the use of ketamine not so much under anesthesia, which is a more long-standing practice, but in the context of acute emergency patients where it might be used for analgesia and or sedation. I will mention a couple of recent human papers in the show notes for your interest. In terms of the veterinary literature, there are lots of anesthesia-related veterinary publications and also some publications describing the concurrent use of ketamine with other agents for sedation, and this includes a fair number of equine papers. There is quite a lot of non-canine and non-feline animal experimental data, sometimes only examining a bit of a tissue or an organ, but a dearth of veterinary clinical data when it comes to looking at ketamine's analgesic effects and also outcomes in actual clinical cases. So we are to some degree left with a mix of opinion, anecdote, clinical experience and extrapolation from human medicine. The other thing I should just mention or just remind you about is that for those of you in the UK, the RCVS says the following about ketamine. Ketamine may be the subject of misuse and therefore should be stored in the controlled drugs cabinet and its use recorded in an informal register. And that was off their website as of March 2015. Okay, so the first point I wanted to cover was how does ketamine work? What does it do? The most widely reported and acknowledged effect of ketamine is as an NMDA receptor antagonist in the central nervous system. NMDA being N-methyl-D-aspartate. This is a receptor that is found in nerve cells and activated, for example, when glutamate binds to it. The NMDA receptor antagonist effect of ketamine is thought to be responsible for most of its effects. But one thing I didn't realise until I did some research on ketamine to prepare for the talk was just how many other receptors it potentially may interact with, and how many other pathways or mechanisms of action it may have. The list is really long and includes, for example, potential interactions with opioid receptors, neuroendocrine systems, voltage-gated channels, and so on. And it is because of all of this that ketamine has been referred to by some people as the nightmare of the pharmacologist. Ketamine causes a continuum of central nervous system effects, and these are dose-dependent effects. At the lowest doses, you get analgesia alone, and as the doses increase, you start to get sedation, partial dissociation, 
and eventually complete dissociation. Dissociation is a state where the patient maintains airway reflexes and cardiorespiratory function but cannot perceive any external stimuli nor interact with the world in any way. Once the patient is completely dissociated, then additional doses do not cause more dissociation. Rather, what they do is they just prolong the duration of action. I suppose that's pretty self-explanatory because how can you be more dissociated than completely dissociated? Anyway, um, it is important to realize that there is overlap between the dose ranges for analgesia versus sedation versus dissociation, but also that we cannot be too precise or prescriptive about these dose ranges because they are at least in part dependent on the individual patient that you are treating. The other thing to realize is that obviously if you have sedated or dissociated a patient with ketamine, they will clearly be getting analgesic benefit from the ketamine, even if that's not the reason for which you used it. I think what has changed in the last decade or so is that the analgesic effect of ketamine has gotten more recognition and it is being used at the lower doses as an analgesic as well as at the higher doses where the analgesia is part of a wider continuum of effects. So let's say you are presented with an acute patient that has a painful condition and you have already started a pure full mu agonist opioid. You have titrated the dose up a little and decide that you want to go multimodal. Well, ketamine is certainly an option for analgesia in such scenarios. It is also used for perioperative analgesia, as well, obviously, for sedation and potentially part of an anesthetic protocol. And back to the point I was making earlier about evidence, there is certainly more published about animals under anesthesia um, than there is about the use of ketamine in non-anesthetized patients. I should also say that in many scenarios where ketamine is used purely for analgesia, the patient is given an initial loading dose and then started on an infusion. But if circumstances dictate, you can give intermittent boluses instead. It's perhaps not ideal, but definitely doable if necessary. In terms of the analgesia from ketamine, then this will relate to both its brain and its spinal cord effects. You will often find it said that ketamine's main role in pain management is to prevent and potentially reverse central sensitization or wind-up. So ketamine is meant to have an anti-hyperalgesia and an anti-allodynia effect. And I don't think that this is something that is disputed at this time. However, what is also discussed is to what extent ketamine also actually just relieves existing pain. So how much of what it does is to address sensitization versus relieving existing pain is open for some discussion. But to be honest, from a clinical point of view, I'm not sure we need to get too hung up on that discussion. The next point I wanted to address is whether ketamine is or is not contraindicated with raised intracranial pressure. If you look in standard veterinary resources over the years, you will see that it usually says that the use of ketamine is contraindicated with raised intracranial pressure. But have you ever wondered where this statement comes from? As far as I can tell, it was basically extrapolated from the recommendation in human medicine 
not to use ketamine with raised intracranial pressure. Which, of course, begs the question, well, where did that recommendation in human medicine come from? Well, it turns out that it was based on some really not very good quality evidence from several decades ago, back in the 1970s. And what has been going on in human medicine in more recent times has been a re-evaluation of this assertion. I am not going to get into this in too much detail, but there are clinical scenarios in which using ketamine may be a really attractive option in a patient with suspected raised intracranial pressure. And so people started to question just how valid the tradition of contraindication was to try and address whether there is a risk, and if there is, then how significant this risk is. So once again, it is that old and beloved friend of this podcast, the risk-benefit analysis. But the discussion, in fact, goes one level deeper than, than just raised intracranial pressure, because intracranial hypertension can occur due to different causes. So, for example, head injury versus a structural space-occupying lesion versus hydrocephalus. And some of the research going on in human medicine is to try and answer this question with respect to these different patient groups, rather than assuming that the effect of ketamine on intracranial pressure is the same in all of them. I could say a lot more about this area, but I'm not going to. Essentially, however, it looks like there is more and more evidence being published supporting the notion that ketamine can be used in a general population of acute emergency human patients with suspected raised intracranial pressure, and especially that when we consider patient-centered outcomes, ketamine is not contraindicated in human head trauma patients. And I will include, of course, a couple of references in the show notes. So you're thinking, I'm sure, what does this mean for those of us who don't treat humans? Well, I guess my take on it is that given that the original contraindication in veterinary patients, as far as I can tell, is not evidence-based, but was instead extrapolated from human medicine, then what we really should be saying is that we don't know where the risk-benefit analysis lies for the use of ketamine in dogs and cats with suspected raised intracranial pressure. But we certainly don't have evidence that it poses any additional risk or causes any additional harm. And to be honest, I think if it wasn't for that information being handed down from book to book, formulary to formulary, presentation to presentation, we may well have never even been concerned. Of course, it all gets a little bit murkier still because we don't actually measure the intracranial pressure of our patients in veterinary medicine and are typically left to infer or presume that it is increased. Having said that, in a number of the human studies being reported, ICP is not measured either. It has been in some studies, but it's not in all of them. And as I say, there is increasing evidence that the use of ketamine in human patients with suspected or proven raised intracranial pressure still has a favourable risk-benefit profile with respect to patient-centred outcomes. And for example, if it is a choice between using ketamine to sedate one of these patients or another drug that poses greater risks in terms of cardiorespiratory depression, well, using ketamine makes sense. Overall, my personal position on this at the moment is that where I feel there are sound reasons to be using ketamine 
in a patient with suspected raised intracranial pressure, I will quite comfortably go ahead and do so. But I will also be keeping an eye on how things evolve with the busting of this myth in human medicine and whether that changes and especially whether any good quality clinical canine or feline evidence becomes available. Another clinically relevant point I wanted to make about ketamine is that it is said to be sympathomimetic, or in other words, that ketamine stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. It seems like this might be due to inhibiting the reuptake of catecholamines so that they continue to have an effect at their receptors, and or through actually promoting the secretion of catecholamines. So either inhibiting reuptake or promoting secretion or potentially both. And I found different suggestions for how this sympathomimetic effect is created. But nevertheless, the theory goes that if you have a patient that is hypoperfused from hypovolemia or another cause of shock, then as you know, the physiological response is to try and compensate for this by stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system with results in tachycardia, vasoconstriction and so on. Cats, we know, are a little bit weird in terms of how they respond to shock, but I don't think anyone is suggesting that they don't have a sympathetic response. So if you give ketamine to one of these patients with cardiovascular instability, then the suggestion is that ketamine may help in that regard, and certainly that it should not cause cardiovascular depression in these cases, unlike you might risk with other agents that you may be considering instead. And in fact, this relates to the previous discussion about raised ICP, because let's say you were treating a blunt trauma patient that has traumatic brain injury and suspected raised intracranial pressure, but also presented hypoperfused, and you're resuscitating the perfusion with your fluids. Well, we know that allowing the brain to suffer ischemic injury is definitely not a good thing. So if you were choosing between either using another drug that may risk worsening the patient's systemic and hence cerebral perfusion status or using ketamine, well, again, ketamine does seem to make more sense. Do you agree with this uh, position? And if you do, or if you don't, let me know. What we also need to know, though, is that if you have an animal where you somehow block the ability of their sympathetic nervous system to respond to the ketamine, or let's say that they actually have catecholamine exhaustion due to what has been going on with them, then in those cases, ketamine may suppress the cardiovascular system. I wanted to just mention this, but I don't think it is something you need to be too preoccupied with because it is not going to apply to virtually any of the patients most of you are likely to be treating. Before I move on from this sympathomimetic point, I'm sure many of you will remember that ketamine is meant to be relatively contraindicated in cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And this relates to its sympathomimetic effect because the idea is that in these cases, the cardiac effect of ketamine may actually cause a cat with subclinical cardiomyopathy to decompensate and especially if they have an obstructive component to their HCM. But I should stress that this is meant to be a relative contraindication, by which I mean that it is not the case that you can or should never give ketamine to a cat with HCM, but rather that, as always, you should be thinking about the risk-benefit analysis. 
And of course, the other interesting point is that I'm sure that many of us have given ketamine to cats with some degree of HCM without knowing it because they were subclinical for their disease. And clearly not all cats are just routinely screened for HCM insofar as we're able to screen for that disease. What giving ketamine to these cats did, we cannot be sure. My own personal experience is that I can only remember one cat that was giving ketamine. He was a male cat with urethral obstruction who went into heart failure a day or so later. And this was the presumed reason. An echo was performed and it revealed HCM. I would be really interested to know of your experiences or if anyone has any further information on the use of ketamine in cats with HCM, then hit me up and let me know. Okay, so the next point I wanted to talk about is ketamine emergence, dysphoria, mania, hyperexcitability, spackiness, or what I, oh, excuse me, or what I shall call ketamine head, which is a term I love, and I must acknowledge Ephra Sullivan for this term, which she mentioned during my talk a couple of days ago. I'm sure that some of you at least have first-hand experience of cats in particular that are recovering from ketamine sedation and the spectrum of neurological signs that they can exhibit. This emergence can range from being entirely unremarkable to really being quite spectacular. What do we do about it? Well, really, the main priority is to do your best to prevent it from occurring in any significant way. And you do this by ensuring that you use other drugs alongside the ketamine and making sure that they are still effective as the ketamine wears off. Let these patients emerge from their ketamine in a quiet room without lots of noise and other stimulation. Making a cat recover from ketamine sedation in the kennel above or next to a barking dog is something that needs to be viewed with some degree of concern, I would suggest. Although I realise that for some people it may be an unavoidable reality of your practice circumstances. And clearly in some patients, the ketamine emergence is such a problem that you may have to administer something else to take the edge off as they continue to recover. This actually leads into my next point, which is whether or not ketamine can be used as the sole agent in a patient. Now I should say that what I'm referring to here is not whether it's okay to load up a syringe with just ketamine and administer it to a patient at an individual point in time, that is fine. But what I'm talking about is whether that patient should already have some other drug like an opioid or an alpha-2 agonist in their system, bound to receptors and working. Is it okay for a patient not to have already received another agent that is on board and working, or indeed to have one with a rapid onset co-administered alongside the ketamine? Well, there are reports of the sole use of ketamine in children, and that seems like a practice for which there is some support. However, as far as I can tell, the sole use of ketamine in adult human patients is not recommended. And I think we should be working on the basis that we should not be using ketamine as a sole agent in dogs and cats, whether adult or pediatric, because anecdotally, this seems like a great way to precipitate potentially extreme ketamine head. I should say that I'm making this recommendation on the basis of very limited anecdotal clinical experience, including from colleagues, 
And so if anyone has any contradictory information, then please do let me know. And I may be happy to shift my position, although you would need to be pretty convincing for me to do so, given what I've seen occur when ketamine has been used on its own. My next point for discussion is that similar to the propagated contraindication of ketamine with raised intracranial pressure that I mentioned earlier, it is also said to be contraindicated in patients with raised intraocular pressure. And again, of course, we should ask whether this is an evidence-based contraindication or another myth. Well, it seems that in human medicine, it has received less research attention than the raised ICP story, which I guess is understandable. But the evidence I did find does seem to support the notion that it is a myth in human medicine and not something for them to be consigned by. I did actually find some veterinary papers on this subject too, but I must say that their quality and clinical relevance is questionable. After all, can we say that what ketamine does to the intraocular pressure of a dog with healthy eyes and normal IOP to begin with, that is also under anesthesia, can we say that this has bearing on its use, for example, in a conscious dog with glaucoma? Overall, my take on what I have found so far is that, again, I think we do not have evidence to support the propagated contraindication of ketamine in patients with raised IOP. I will continue to watch the evidence, but in the meantime, I would be comfortable to use ketamine where I think the benefits are sound. My next point for discussion is the use of ketamine in dogs and cats undergoing caesarean section. Now, we know that in these patients, there is some concern and debate about what constitutes the safest drug protocols, not just for the dam, but also for the litter. I am not going to take the lid off that can of worms here, but I will say for the record that I am most definitely not in the camp of people who are paranoid about giving the mum adequate pre-med and analgesia prior to removing the neonates. Frankly, I hate the idea of anaesthetized but not analgesic dogs and cats being cut open due to what I think are significantly misplaced and overblown concerns of using safe judicious analgesia. Furthermore, I would encourage everyone who isn't already to think about using local anesthetics as infiltration incision blocks and or splash blocks. And I know that some people use epidural local anesthetics with or without opioids in these cases, but I'm not going to talk about that any further either. Okay, so mini rant over, back to ketamine. Can and indeed should you be including it as part of your C-section protocol? Well, my overall conclusion is yes, I think you can and potentially should do based on the evidence that I have found so far. Its use in women undergoing C-section is relatively common and certainly well reported and the information that I could find suggests that it is considered to be safe and rational for use around C-section in people. I also was not able to find any evidence that suggests that it is contraindicated in animals and especially in dogs or cats. Of course, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because I did not find any evidence of ketamine being contraindicated does not make it indicated. But that said, as I mentioned, at this time, I would personally be fine with using ketamine 
as part of a C-section protocol. And remember that including ketamine in the C-section protocol will not only augment your multimodal analgesia, but hopefully also allow you to use lower doses of opioids and especially of potentially more cardiorespiratory depressant inhalant anesthetics. So it makes a lot of sense, I think. Okay, and to finish off the podcast, I just wanted to mention a few other bits and pieces, other things that I wanted to highlight about ketamine. So the protective airway reflexes are preserved with ketamine, which can confer some extra safety. Cat's eyes remain open, so it's very important to make sure that you keep them well lubricated to prevent corneal erosion. I don't think I have personally seen this, but apparently ketamine may make cats salivate excessively, something that is reported more in humans. In most species, ketamine undergoes metabolism in the liver, although apparently this is minimal in cats, and both ketamine and its metabolites are excreted via the kidneys. Available evidence in people at this time does not suggest the need for dose reduction with hepatic or renal impairment. The use of ketamine in the treatment of refractory status epilepticus has been reported in people. There is one published case report in a dog, but there is also some additional non-published clinical experience, the extent of which is impossible to know. And ketamine is also sometimes used in children with refractory status asthmaticus due to its potential effect of causing bronchodilation via beta-2 adrenergic receptor stimulation. I'm not aware of any reports or experience with anyone trying this in asthmatic cats. That said, I'm also not sure that we see cats with refractory status asthmaticus that frequently, where we would need to even consider an alternative option. Certainly, my personal experience is that even in the worst of the asthmatic cats I have treated, they have responded to conventional acute therapies, and I was not left wondering if there was anything else I could try. And we do also need to bear in mind that human asthma and feline asthma are not the same disease process. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast. I hope that you found it interesting. I certainly did doing the research for the talk that I gave and for preparing this episode. The question I asked earlier on in the talk was, is ketamine really all that? So what do you think? Let me know. I would love to hear your thoughts. As usual, you can download a transcript of the episode by going to veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 14. And there you will also see a list of some papers that informed my talk and this podcast episode. So that's veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 14. That's the number one four. And lastly, before I sign off, a reminder and a request that if you found the episode interesting and useful, it would be really great if you could take a few seconds out of your day or indeed out of your night to rate or review the podcast in iTunes. I'm always extremely grateful to read your feedback on the podcast series. The next episode, as always, will be in two weeks' time, barring any unforeseen disasters, accidents, or catastrophes. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.